We are rounding third base in our study of the book of Acts. Home plate is in sight. We find ourselves today in Acts chapter 21, 22, and 23. So go ahead and find your way in your scriptures to Acts chapter 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Yes, it's still the fifth book in the New Testament. Hadn't moved since last week. Place your finger somewhere around there, Acts chapter 21. We'll look at some passages here in just a moment. And now let's raise our Bibles up in the air. Thanks for bringing yours. Let's say together the pray prayer that we always pray as we study the book of Acts. You ready? Dear Lord, thank you for your wonderful Acts. What you did then, would you do again? What you did through them, would you do through us? In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, we've seen our share of earthquakes lately, haven't we? We've seen buildings teeter and collapse. We've seen walls cave in and crash. Entire neighborhoods have been reduced to rubble. We've grown acquainted, too acquainted, with, with terms like aftershock, Richter scale, seismologists. We've seen what happens when the world tumbles in. Of course, you probably already knew. You don't have to tune in to CNN or Fox News to watch an earthquake. Perhaps the walls of financial security buckled on you. For all those years of poor health, finally took their toll. The death of the child or the, the bankruptcy of a business or even the criticism of a friend can shake your world to its core. Boom! Crash! Bam! Have you ever felt just the foundation of your world shake? The Apostle Paul did. Yes, even the Apostle Paul he returned to Jerusalem after nearly 20 years as a missionary to the Gentiles. He came back to Jerusalem with a passion for his fellow Jews, an unrequited passion, but a passion nonetheless. He once wrote these words. He said, I wish I could help my Jewish brothers and sisters, my people. I would even wish that I were cursed off and cut off from Christ if that would help them. Romans 9 and in verse 3. And so after all these years on the mission field, he went back. He went back with a gift from the Gentiles. He went back to build unity between Jews and Gentiles. But he also went back with a passion to reach the Jewish people. He was willing to do almost anything. He even took a Nazarite vow so he could relate to the people. And when he fulfilled this Nazarite vow, the vow took him to the temple. And when he was in the temple, people began making false accusations against him. Look in Acts chapter 21, verses 28 through 36. Acts chapter 21, verses 28 through 36. Oh, the wonderful sound of turning pages. This is what the men were saying about Paul. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches against our people and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple, and he even defiles it by bringing Gentiles in. For earlier that day they had seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, 
And they assumed Paul had taken him into the temple. The whole population of the city was rocked by these accusations, and a great riot followed. Paul was dragged out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed behind him. As they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. When the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. The commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. Then he asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Someone shouted one thing, some shouted another. He couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar and confusion, so he ordered Paul to be taken into the fortress. As they reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent that the soldiers had to lift Paul to their shoulders to protect him. And the crowd followed behind shouting, kill him, kill him. That's what you call a bad day. <laughs> and things got worse. The commander gave Paul a chance to speak. And when Paul spoke, he described his Damascus Road conversion. We looked at this last week. He was hoping that his story would warm the hearts of those who were out to kill him. It did just the opposite. It angered them. Look in chapter 22 now, if you don't mind skipping over. Chapter 22, verse 22. Chapter 22, verse 22. The crowd listened until Paul came to that word, and then with one voice they shouted, Away with such a fellow, kill him, he isn't fit to live. They threw off their coats, tossed handfuls of dust into the air. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips. Ouch is right. To make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. The Roman tribune ordered the soldiers to string up Paul and scourge him with that vicious flagellum that the Romans were infamous for using the same whip that they used on the back of Jesus Christ. It would have maimed Paul, perhaps even killed Paul, but Paul reminded a soldier who was standing nearby that he was a Roman soldier, I'm sorry, a Roman citizen. It was against the law to whip a Roman citizen. And so the centurion backed off. He invited then Paul to give an explanation, to speak on his own defense, and Paul wasted no time. Now look in chapter 23 of verse 1, in verse 1. Chapter 23, in verse 1. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, I have always lived before God in all good conscience. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. This verse comes with sound effects. I don't know if you know. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you whitewashed wall. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? Those standing near Paul said to him, Is that the way to talk to God's high priest? I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say, Do not speak evil of anyone who rules over you. This is one of the most curious interchanges in the whole book of Acts. How do we explain this? The high priest doesn't like what Paul says. So he says, slap that guy. Whack. Paul doesn't like being slapped. So he calls the high priest a whitewashed wall. 
And then those standing near Paul say, don't you know who you're talking to? That was the high priest you're calling names. And Paul says, oh, I'm sorry, I was brought up better than that. This is a curious interchange, isn't it? What are we to do with this? Did Paul really not know that that was the high priest? Well, you know, maybe he didn't. We know that later in his life, and we are in the latter half of, or latter third of Paul's life now, we know that, <coughs> excuse me, he, he lost a lot of his eyesight. He really did. He, he began losing his eyesight. Maybe, maybe he couldn't make out who that was that was, that was talking to him. Maybe the room was dark. Or maybe the man had changed. It's been nearly 20 years since Paul's been in Jerusalem. And what used to be a black beard is now a white beard. And, and he doesn't recognize him. Or maybe he's just frustrated. It's been a rough day. I mean, his own people tried to kill him. They kicked him out of the temple. They made up stories about him. And then the Romans were about to kill him. Had it not been for his Roman citizenship, he'd be nearly dead right now. It's been a rough day. Maybe he just kind of gave up. Maybe he just lost it. So he regains his composure. He's sensing things are out of hand. He regains his composure and he says, Okay, I want to talk to you about the topic of the resurrection. Now this was an interesting topic for Paul to select because the Sanhedrin, this group of leaders was equally divided. Some of them believed in their resurrection and some of them did not. And at the very mention of the word resurrection, they start squabbling among themselves. And we want to know, Paul, why did you bring up the resurrection? Did you intentionally want to start an argument out there? Or did you know something about the resurrection that they didn't know and could you no longer contain yourself? Did you have to bring up now the resurrection of Christ in order to give them hope? What motivated you to do this? I honestly don't know. And I don't think we will know till we get to heaven because they don't let Paul speak again. He just spoke his final word to a Jerusalem crowd. And it's an argument. Paul gets dragged back by the Roman authorities. Verse 10, if you'll look. Verse 10 of chapter 23. The shouting grew louder and louder and the men were tugging at Paul from both sides. Pulling this way and that. Finally the commander fearing they would tear him apart ordered his soldiers to take him away from them and bring him back to the fortress. Luke here uses the same verb that Mark used in his gospel when he described the demoniac who would tear his chains. There's the appearance that they're going to tear Paul in half. One pulling on one arm, one on the other. The Roman centurion starts tearing his hair out, trying to figure out how to bring this crowd under control. And the only thing he can do is, play, is place Paul in protective custody. And so Paul ends up spending the night in the barracks, in the jail. I'm thinking this must have been a rough night for Paul. Everything went wrong. He came back to Jerusalem with such a good heart, with such noble intentions. But the people he tried to help tried to kill him. He nearly died twice. He preached a sermon, his best sermon, but nobody listened to it. He was slapped in public. He lost his composure. And in doing so, he lost his opportunity to talk about the resurrection. And now he sat in jail feeling like an utter failure. I mean, his discouragement re registered 8.8 .8 on the Richter scale. 
His world has collapsed around him. And everything he had hoped to do, he cannot do any longer. And there he is, sitting in the rubble. He has no one to turn to. He's all alone. He's in the same situation as Evan Muncy. You've heard the story of Evan Muncy. Have you? The Haitian trapped 27 days in the rubble of Port-au-Prince. 27 days. Given up for dead. And as the rescuers were dislodging rocks, they heard a voice down in what used to be a market. And they thought to themselves, no, it couldn't be true. Not a survivor after 27 days. They dislodged rocks, they dug, and there he was, still alive. Emaciated, wounded, but otherwise in good health. And they asked him, how, how could you survive for 27 days? Did you hear his answer? He said, a man in a white coat brought him water every day. Journalists and authorities said that couldn't be true. But he has stuck with his story. And no one else has another explanation. A man in a white coat found him at the bottom of the rubble and brought him water every day. I'm wondering if that man in the white coat might not have been the same one who came to the Apostle Paul in the Roman barracks the day that his world tumbled in. You see, Paul thought he was all alone there in the Roman jail. <laughs> But he wasn't. This verse is so important. I'm going to project it on the screen. Verse 11 of chapter 23. But the following night. The Lord. Stood by him. I love that phrase. The Lord stood by him. And he said be of good cheer Paul. For you have testified for me in Jerusalem. You must also bear witness at Rome. Whew. We could make a meal out of that verse, couldn't we? Look at these morsels. The following night. Have you noticed that Christ comes at night? Not, not night on our clock necessarily, but just those times in which our days are dark. He comes at night. And when he came, the Lord stood by him. He didn't stand away from him. He didn't stand in a, at a distance. He didn't even hover above him. He stood by him. Boy, sometimes all we need is somebody just to stand by us. And the Lord encouraged Paul, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. He didn't say, what were you thinking today when you called the priest a whitewashed wall? He didn't say, well, why did you lose your composure? He said, listen, be of good cheer. The Greek word here is just one word for what takes us four words to say in, in English. It's the word tharseo, tharseo. 
And it's found often in relating the words of Jesus. Jesus, speaking to a sick man, said, Son, be of good cheer. To the woman with the issue of blood, he urged, Be of good cheer, daughter. To the fear-filled disciples in the storm, he said, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And now to Paul, he said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm not finished with you. I'm not finished with you, remember? I have set you apart. I have sent you to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And though you may feel like you have failed among the Jews, I am not finished with you. I'm going to send you to Rome. Do you think those words meant anything to Paul? Do you? Might these words mean something to you? Your world right now may be in good shape. Maybe all is smooth. Uh, maybe it's been a while since you felt any turbulence or, or seismic activity in your world. But I want you to know you're not far from someone who's going through an earthquake right now. You may be two or three people or just two or three rows. This room is dotted with people who are going through major change in your life. And you need to hear in your heart what Jesus said to Paul. These words are not just for him, but these words are for you. You see, when your world is at its worst, Jesus is at his best. Not because he changes, but because we listen. When you're at the end of the rope, that's really when you're at the beginning of your hope. Not because there wasn't hope before, but because sometimes we have to get to the end of the rope to see hope coming. I was thinking of end of the rope people about 10 days ago when Gary Chance, one of our elders, took some of our other elders and Randy Frazee and me on a tour of the Haven for Hope. The Haven for Hope is a 34-acre campus located in the heart of San Antonio that exists to touch the heart of homeless people. It's the most phenomenal gift to the city that the city has received in many, many decades. The Haven for Hope exists to provide education, physical, mental, and spiritual help. There is a chapel. There is training for jobs. There is job placement. There is medical care. There is dental care. Why, there's even kennel care for the homeless who show up with their puppies. It's unlike anything that you've ever seen. We had several and have several Oak Hills members who are actively involved in the development. Robert Marbot, Gary Chance, B.J. Blanks, Ann Myers, Sean Lee. Gary related to me the story of when he first saw what would be turned into the Haven for Hope. It was just an abandoned warehouse and, and he and, and, and Robert Marbot went to look at it. They had already, it had already been purchased. The plans had already been made. It was about to be gutted, renovated, and turned into what they call a transformation center. Huge warehouse. But at that point, it was just an abandoned, dilapidated building. As Gary and Robert pulled up in a pickup truck to walk into the building, 
Five homeless men came out from under what used to be a loading dock at the warehouse. And they came running at Robert and Gary with rocks in their hands, telling them to leave, leave, get out. You see, they had heard that their facility, wretched place that it was, was about to be renovated. And they didn't want anybody to come in and touch that worn out old building. Isn't that ironic? That the very men who came to help them were the ones they tried to chase away. I've wondered what if Gary and Robert had tried to sit down with the men and say, okay, well here's what this building is going to be. It's going to become a transformation center where you can get job interviews and training and placement. My hunch is they couldn't have comprehended that whole building being turned into something for their good. And so they would rather have the devil they knew than the angel they didn't. And so they came out with rocks. Aren't we the same way? I wonder if God's trying to renovate some dilapidated parts of your life. And you feel the change coming and you come out with rocks. Not me, no way, I'm not going to, no way, uh uh-uh, no, no. Rather have no change than good change. And so you just kind of hunker down, buckle in bow your neck, resist it, get angry. When all this time, could it be, I'm just raising a possibility here, could it be that the very change that brings fear and threat into your world is from God's hand? And that He has not left you. And that the beauty of this dark time is that you're going to see Christ like you've never seen Him before. And He's going to show up and He's going to be standing right by you. This is the promise of Scripture. The Apostle Paul would later write, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not cancer, not death, not disease, not transfers. Nothing. You see, when you place your faith in Christ, Christ places His Spirit in you. When you place your faith in Christ, Christ places His Spirit in you. And His Spirit will never leave you. On the night before His crucifixion, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor who, what? Who will never leave you. He will never leave you. He said, I will give you a counselor. And this is a great word. We've studied it before. Parakletos in Greek. Para means to come alongside. Kletos means designated or set apart. Parakletos. The one designated to come alongside. It's almost as if the Trinity gave the Holy Spirit this assignment. You go inside Him and Her and you you don't let them out of your sight. You stick to them. You stay in them. Listen, ever since you gave your heart to Christ, you have never been alone. I don't care where you traveled. I don't care how far you stumbled. You were not alone. His Spirit was and His Spirit is in you. What a gift of His presence this is. The Lord is with us. Will you say that phrase with me? The Lord is with us. Now can you personalize it? Instead of us, say me. The Lord is with me. He is. He is. Maybe you think the world is caved in around you and you're all by yourself. You're not. The Lord 
is with me. Yesterday I was cleaning out the garage in our house and I came across a prayer chapel. I used to have prayer altar I used to have in my office back when we officed here on this campus. And when we built that prayer altar, the, the man who built it said, Would you like a verse engraved on it? And I said, Yes. And we had the phrase taken out of the book of Philippians engraved on the prayer altar. The Lord is with us. So that every time anybody who would come to see me for prayer would kneel at that altar, I could show them that phrase. Because it brings us so much strength. The Lord is with us. You have a counselor. You have somebody overseeing you. And his promise will never fail. You see, God had given Paul a promise. That promise is that he would appear before Gentiles and their kings. This was his life assignment. That he would appear before Gentiles and their kings. In the first two decades of his ministry, the Apostle Paul appeared before Gentiles. And now, as we turn the page from Acts chapter 23 into 24, 25, 26, 27, we're going to see Paul appearing before kings. He's going to appear before Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 25, he appears before Governor Festus. Didn't want to get him backwards. Sometimes I do. First there was Felix. And then comes Festus. And then comes King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. The assignment that he had been given would be the assignment he would fulfill. And that assignment would take him all the way to Rome. His life would still be difficult. For from a Roman prison he would write these words. At my first defense no one stood with me. But all forsook me. Look, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He will stand with you. I'm wondering if you would receive that today. Maybe your husband didn't stand with you. Maybe your wife didn't stand with you. Maybe you feel like the government has stood, hasn't stood with you. Maybe you feel like those who made promises broke those promises and they haven't stood with you. I don't know. But I, knew, I do know that God will stand with you. But listen, you need to stand with Him. You need to stand with Him. When the earthquakes come, our response can be panic. Our response can be anger. Our response can be unmet expectation. Our response can be self-pity and victimization. Don't be among those. You be one who just stands firm. Maybe all you can do is stand, but you stand. And you remind yourself over and over again what Christ said to Paul. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. Have courage. Stand strong. You be faithful. And you listen. You look. You be sensitive to the work of the unseen. The work of the Holy Spirit who is your parakletos, your comforter. And who knows, in the midst of your darkest hour, you may sense the presence of the one wearing the white coat, bringing you the water to sustain you until your final rescue.